Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, October the 28th. We are talking about Kyle Beach. He reveals himself as the Chicago Blackhawks player and prospect that was sexually assaulted, allegedly, by a video coach. The team didn't investigate. There's questions as to whether the league knew and didn't investigate. It's an important conversation. It goes to all levels of hockey. These scandals haven't just appeared overnight. We know this. Sheldon Kennedy, Theo Fleury, all the victims of Maple Leaf Gardens usher Gordon Stuckless. We know this. We'll talk about it with you on the podcast today. Greg Wyshynski from Puck, uh, ESPN, the Puck Daddy, will join us. Senior NHL writer and Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star in on this as well. Also, we uh, chat with Erica Eiffel. She's pretty ticked that a certain MP didn't get chosen as a member of the Trudeau cabinet. We'll talk about that with her on the way. Thanks for checking us out. It's Toronto Today. We have a busy show, really busy stuff. Um, and there's Rogers uh, stuff I want to get to. This $200 million payout for Joe Natale. Um, you know, you must love your gig if they offer to pay you $200 million to leave it. And you're like, I'd really like to stay. I didn't say 200. I didn't say 20,000. I added four more zeros because that's the number. $200 million. That would be the golden parachute that's made of gold, like the best gold, not that not that white gold stuff. Don't make mistakes there, okay? A lot of that, lot of that Trump gold is fake, phony gold anyway. You don't like it. But Jonathan was offered. Now, by the way, who wants that out there? This whole week has been a, uh, you could have a game show. You could bring some of the great game show hosts back from the dead. You could bring back Richard Dawson or Gene Rayburn. Uh, and by the way, the Gene Rayburn show on uh, on 640 was amazing in the early 80s. I, he went from match game to the talk show. He was so good, so insightful. Um, and he used that long, thin microphone also that he used on match game, which was a weird one. Um, but you could bring back a game show host from the dead this week and say, it, the, the game show would basically be like, who wants this out there? Who wants it out there that Edward Rogers uh, insulted Masai Ujiri, insulted uh, him personally, and questioned his you know legitimacy to continue on with the Toronto Raptors? Edward doesn't want that out there. But does Edward want it out there that the Rogers family was willing to pay Joe Natale $200 million? And when Edward Rogers wants to keep running Rogers, suggesting we're not getting maximum return for shareholders because of wasteful spending in the company at the executive level, that would be a better example than that. Let's get rid of Joe Natale. Okay, the family's like, we'll, we'll give him $200 million. 200, I can't even believe it. It's the fourth time it's come out of my mouth and it gets more unbelievable each time. It was, it, yeah, it was less believable. It was more believable the first time than it is the fourth time. I feel like I'm lying to you, but that was the concept. That would be the compensation package for Jonah Daly to walk away from Rogers. I'm not stuttering. $200 million. Okay, if I keep talking about it, my heart rate is going to soar, soar. Guy writes in, they're, they're hassling me about a $150 cell phone bill, and they're handing Jonah Daly $200 million. Yeah, I got it. I get it. Um, let me start here because we have to. Last night uh, on the Sports Network, TSN, um, I'm so glad we have a Rick Westhead in this country. We only have one. It's better than zero, but we should have more than one. 
Rick Westhead did phenomenal journalism in uh, tracing this story down. We were talking last week, Rick and I were, because he has a new book coming out about Joe Murphy. And Joe, um, if you remember some of the stories, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Uh, Joe was a former number one overall draft pick in the NHL and uh, played for Detroit and was drafted by the Red Wings when they were really lousy in the mid-80s. Like, the Leafs were bad, but the Red Wings were even worse in a couple of those years. So Joe Murphy gets drafted by the Red Wings, eventually goes on to play for Edmonton, wins the Stanley Cup in Edmonton in 1990. Remember, Wayne Gretzky gets traded, and that's like, ah, the Edmonton, well, they will never win another Stanley Well, they won a year and a half later without Wayne Gretzky, with Mark Messier as captain, didn't they? So Joe Murphy's on that team, and, and he has a good pro career. But then he's out of the sport, you know, maybe, I wouldn't say relatively early, but for a player of his caliber, I think maybe people thought he played at least 35 or 36. He found himself homeless up in a, a town in northern Ontario, and Rick was able to track him down, and Rick wrote a book about his journey, if you will. Um, so we were talking last week about coming on the show, and sometimes I will I will let you behind the curtain a little bit. Sometimes there's this Rogers Bell business. Well, you can't have that person, and you can't do this. And I I, I always thought it was a little bit uh, petty, if you will, um, but it happens, right? Like people are protective of their company. Um, you know, we had Peter Mansbridge on the show to talk about his book, and nobody stops me and says, "Well, that that's that's a CBC guy." Uh, Carol McNeil said goodbye the other night. I mentioned that yesterday on the show. She was amazing on television for years, and it's worth mentioning. So I don't care about that stuff um, like other people do, but everybody has a boss, and those bosses have bosses. So you don't want to, you know, make the wrong make the wrong step. Everybody's got a boss, right? So, um, but Rick said, no, it's cool with my bosses if it's cool with yours. And I'm like, I don't know why it wouldn't be, of course. So we Rick was going to come on the show next week. He can't tell me any of this stuff about Kyle Beach, which I understand, Um and so he interviews Kyle Beach last night on television, who's 31 and playing hockey in Germany right now. And he revealed himself as the John Doe, the former Blackhawks player who has, by the way, it didn't get talked about enough last night. There is a current lawsuit against the team because they swept his sexual assault allegations under the rug. I've read the report. It's a long one, and it is not easy to read. It's not easy to read in any context. Um, Kyle Beach uh, was in a, a lot of bad situations, but um, he's a victim here, allegedly. He is the only victim here. There is no other victim to speak of in this investigation. That's made clear by this law firm. The Blackhawks, by the way, commissioned the law firm and said, let's investigate. It's led to the departure of a popular president in John McDonough back in 2020. That was a little bit of an odd one, why they the Blackhawks were moving off of him, and now it's not. And then obviously Stan Bowman stepped aside um, yesterday, two days ago. Yeah, two days ago, uh, Stan Bowman stepped aside as general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks and also resigned. He was going to put together the U.S. Olympic team for um, the NHL Olympics in China, in essence, because NHL players are going back there. So it would seem they didn't go to South Korea in 2018. Um, but the interview was beyond harrowing. The interview was beyond difficult to watch. He was, uh, Kyle Beach lost his emotional control a few times, and I can understand it. You're, you're telling truths in his mind that um, you probably never thought you would tell to the general public. Um, I had never heard about this. I, I'll put it this way. I'd heard rumors about Theron Fleury before Theron Fleury came out in his book and said, I am also a, a abuse victim of Graham James. 
that was out there when he played for the uh, Swift Current Broncos, similar to, to the former NHLer Sheldon Kennedy, who came out in the late 90s and said, Graham James abused me, and he also abused other players. Flurry was, uh, was rumored, and, and you, know, you have to hold that and, and be responsible when you talk about it in social circles, let alone on the radio, um, and you can't, you, you can't out people who aren't ready to be outed okay, in any context. Okay. Um, but Kyle Beach was ready yesterday and I want to, I want to listen to some of this with you in case you have, uh, are, are hearing it for the first time. The impact of this is going to be massive. I don't think, I know there's hyperbole and there's hype and you, you blow things up. This is the biggest that this is the hugest scandal. This will be a lasting impact scandal. And hockey is going to go one way. They're going to put up their hand and say, this is an isolated incident. And I, I strain myself worrying about that. Or they're going to say, knock it all down, man. Knock it all down and, and start over with hockey and hockey culture. Because I'm going to tell you this, and you may know this already or think this already. It's the worst sport for culture and inclusiveness and understanding and uh, uh, you know appreciation of equality that is out there. And that's too bad because I love it. And it's a, been a big part of my life and professionally and personally and taking your kid to games. My kid only played, my one kid played four years of high school, uh, high school, uh, house league hockey and was never really going anywhere that had a good time. But uh, there was a moment of abuse for him, not sexual, but there was a moment of abuse and I saw it on the bench and it enraged me. It's the maddest I've been as a parent. I'm going to leave that and talk about that at eight o'clock because we're, we're pushing the clock already, but I want to keep talking about this and make this a bit of a different show because sometimes there's just only one story on your mind. Sometimes, you know, vaccine mandates and COVID cases are going to be around tomorrow. And I don't know that I'll feel as raw about this. Um, and I always think when a host does that, you say he cares, uh, so I will too. There's lots of times that you're, you're like, wow, there's an eight-minute interview here about a bike lane. Is the host really invested in this? Well, as you can tell, I'm hot and I'm invested in this. Uh, Kyle Beach talked first about what ha- and I will lay out some of what happened, but Beach was assaulted allegedly by the team's video coach, uh, a gentleman named Brad Aldridge. Beach in this first clip, in this interview aired on TSN last night at 6 p.m., talked about his feelings after the initial assault. To be honest, I I was scared, mostly. I was fearful. I had had my career threatened. I felt alone and dark. Um, Sorry, it's tough to recall these moments. I think mostly I felt like I was alone and there was nothing I could do and nobody I could turn to for help. And I didn't know what to do. As a 20-year-old, I would never dream or you could never imagine being put in this situation by somebody that's supposed to be there to help you and to make you a better hockey player and a better person and continue to build your career. Maybe you're thinking what I'm thinking hearing that. He's 20. What if you're 10? What if you're 12 and you haven't formed uh, not just you haven't formed the ideas of accountability and responsibility and you haven't formed ideas of who to trust and who not to. And you haven't also formed uh, the concept that some stuff is uh, you know meant to be a secret and some stuff is not. And that one is not. 
Okay. Sometimes I'm, you know, I'll, I'll take my kid to McDonald's back from a movie when we're, we're supposed to be coming home for dinner. And I'll be like, don't tell mom that we just got McDonald's. And the kid keeps the secret. And sometimes he blabs it 20 seconds after getting inside the door. But, but he's kid. He's not university age. He's not a consenting adult in other relationships. Beach talked about going uh, home that summer. This incident happened in 2010 during the Stanley Cup playoffs. He gets called up. They often do this. They'll call up minor league players, use them for practices. They're, most of them aren't eligible to play in the Stanley Cup playoffs, but the Blackhawks went all the way to the final that year and won. So Beach is with the team. And he tells uh, a Blackhawks skill coach, but he doesn't tell any of the players. And he knows that this is making it up the chain. But later that summer, he also tells his parents. Listen to Kyle Beach explain what that was like. I don't remember exactly when I told them. Uh, it was shortly after it had happened in the summer. Um, my mom cried for days. She felt responsible. She felt like she should have protected me. And there was nothing she could do. And after that first conversation with them, we never spoke about it again uh, until very recently. Um, I never brought it up and they respected my privacy. They would ask if I was okay and let me talk about what I wanted to talk about. And um, I did what I thought I had to do to, to survive. Can't imagine that pain. And, and, and there's no way that mom should feel responsible or culpable for the pain she feels or the pain her son feels or the pain the dad feels or the pain an older brother feels. There was nothing they could have done. You don't know. You're going to let your kids down through life. Believe me. I know. But not like that and not with that element of responsibility. There is no way that woman should feel accountable and to think about it every day. And I'm sure it's magnified now. She's proud of her son going on television yesterday, but all the pain rushes back. The last clip this segment I want to play you is Kyle Beach documenting what it's like to watch the coach that assaulted him allegedly sexually parade around with the Stanley Cup, get a day with the Stanley Cup, walk away from the franchise with no one knowing, no responsibility, no accountability. And the head coach of the team, Joel Quenville, writes a very, you know, praising, comp flowing, complimentary letter about what an amazing coach he is. And he helps him get jobs elsewhere, knowing this allegation. He knows by this point, at least that the allegation is out there. And the Hawks don't do their due diligence in investigating, investigating it until a decade later. Listen to this audio about Kyle Beach talk about how he felt when the organization prioritized a video coach and the Stanley Cup over someone who said they were sexually assaulted. I felt sick to my stomach. I reported this and I was made aware that it made it all the way up the chain of command by Doc Gary and nothing happened. It was like his life was the same as it was the day before, the same every day. And then when they won to see him paraded around, lifting the cup at the parade, at the team pictures, at the celebrations, it made me feel like nothing. It made me feel like I didn't exist. It made me feel that I wasn't important. And it made me feel like that 
he was in the right and I was wrong. Yeah, you hear the fear. You hear the, the, the threat that he still feels from this person and the organization turning their back on somebody that they brought in to be a difference maker, to be a good player, a first-round draft pick. And it wouldn't matter if he was a seventh-round draft pick. It wouldn't matter if he was a free agent off the streets. A man comes to you and says, this happened to me, and you don't look into it. And maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe. Maybe he's wrong. But but I don't believe that in this case, and I don't think you do either, um, given that there's a trend of behavior by the other person here. Uh, we'll take your text most of the morning on this, 289-975-1640. How does that you make you feel listening to Kyle Beach? And have you altered your opinion about what we need to do in the world of hockey? Maybe you view it as an isolated incident. Maybe you're saying, Greg, this has got nothing to do with me enjoying the sport, but we should put the Blackhawks on the barbecue and fry them and punish them severely. They fine them $2 million. Oh, great. There's about 20,000 tickets plus beer plus parking. Fantastic. That's not enough. That's not enough to fire people or allow people to quit with an element of grace and dignity and find them $2 million. Okay, the hockey world rocked, uh, rather shocked, and yet uh, this was a bit of a, this could be end up being a bit of an avalanche, starting with one snowball rolling down the mountain. We mentioned the Penn State scandal and how that went from one allegation publicly to much, much more than that. We talked about the Maple Leaf Garden scandal that people remember quite well here in this city that uh, grew into uh, an avalanche of accusations and revelations against a former Maple Leaf Gardens uh, usher. Uh, and Graham James, n- no different, really. N- no different, right? Because Sheldon Kennedy led to Theo Fleury, which led to other players, and on and on. Um, but this has so many layers to it. In the immediacy, uh, last night, Joel Quenville coached a game for the Florida Panthers. He will meet with Gary Bettman today. But it's complicated, isn't it? Because the allegations from Kyle Beach suggest that this went quite up the ladder in the NHL ranks, not just in the Chicago Blackhawks organizational ranks. So uh, it was raw. It was harrowing to watch. It's one of the most difficult things uh, I've had to watch. And some of the Chicago Blackhawks players had to address it last night. Gentleman who was writing about it last night on ESPN.com. He's their senior NHL writer um, and always uh, a great voice for this sport. Greg Wyshynski, our guest. Um, you probably felt like I felt last night. It didn't feel right watching games. And there haven't been too many times we've said that about a sport that both you and I love. But, but last night didn't feel normal. No, it didn't, and it especially didn't feel right watching a Florida Panthers game with Joel Quenville behind the bench. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that everybody pointed out, and I'll point it out too, is that when you have a player that may or may not face punishment from the National Hockey League for doing something on the ice or off the ice, keep in mind, in 2008, Sean Avery was suspended indefinitely hours before a game mm-hmm. because he made a sex joke in the locker room. Whenever we have a situation like this with a player, they are not allowed to participate in the next game before the hearing with the league. And let's face it, today is a hearing with Gary Bettman. Um, So the idea that Joel Quenville was allowed to coach last night by either the Florida Panthers or the National Hockey League was the real stomach-turning aspect of it because it happened literally an hour after we saw Kyle Beach pour his heart out uh, on, on national television and tell us basically how his life and his career were irreparably damaged by a coach that, according to the report, Bill Quenville helped protect. 
Greg, was there one more? It was re- difficult. It was difficult as a, as a son, as a parent. It was difficult as, of all that uh, to watch the interview last night. You know, my legs literally started shaking at, at one point in time. Was there any one part that was more heart-wrenching for you than another? It really was the fact that he had to sit there and watch Brad Aldrich celebrate the championship with the Blackhawks. Like, like Aldrich is one of the boys. Like, like nothing had happened. Like the meeting amongst mm-hmm. senior leadership never happened, as if the players hadn't heard anything. And I still don't believe these denials coming from the current Blackhawks that no one knew anything. Um, the idea that he had to watch Aldrich raise the cup on the ice, that he saw photographs of Aldrich with the coaching staff in their room, that he saw Aldrich at the parade and, and saw him with his day with the cup. Like I said yesterday, man, like, I don't care what you got to do. Take a soldering iron, burn that man's name off the Stanley cup. The idea that that monument exists uh, to the destruction of a young man's life uh, on what is, I think a lot of us consider to be almost like a sacred uh, you know, monument to hockey in the cup is insane to me. Like do the mm-hmm. X's over it. Like they did with Pockington's dad, do whatever you need to do, but take that man's name off the cup for the sake of Kyle beach. Are, are you, you know, you, you've got this amazing uh, career. Hockey's been really good to you um, and, and you've been in it a long time. And, and you, you know what I think of, uh, of your work and the influence you've had. And, and ESPN now is back in the hockey business. And, and, that, and that's awesome. But do you feel at all conflicted with loving hockey, caring about it so much and worried that the culture isn't right, that the culture's a little off its access, and and that the sport and the culture sometimes don't align. And we can say that about a ton of sports. We got racist soccer fans in Europe, and we got tons of problems in the NFL sometimes. And so, you know, sports conflict us at the best of times. How do you feel about it now? Well, I mean, look, I, I, read, I wrote about, a little bit about this in my column today on, on ESPN, but, like, it's difficult to be a hockey fan sometimes. I think we all know that, you know, whether it's the stuff that happens off the ice, whether it's the stuff that happens on the ice, the flashpoints of violence and the, and the moments in which, you know, you see somebody taking out on a stretcher, even for something that, that happens on a mundane play. I mean, it, it is sometimes very hard to be a hockey fan. Um, what I come away with at least yesterday um, is that, you know, the community ra- rallied around uh, beach in, in, in a way that it does in these situations. And, and, when I think about allegations that are made, you know, 10 years after the fact in situations like this in hockey, um, whether it's, you know, uh, sexual assault in, in, in Kyle Beach's case, or whether it's simply just some players coming forward with feelings of mental health issues. Um, like, I think it's gotten better. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I feel like, I feel like in 2010, he's not saying a word. Um, because he doesn't think that the community would have his back or would understand what happened to him. Um, and I think he's kept it inside for over a decade for that very reason, right? So I take some heart in the idea that it's toxic, and make no mistake, it is toxic, yeah. that hockey culture can be. I think as a community, we've gotten to a place where we can support people and make people feel more comfortable that they can come out and say these things and know that we're going to have their back. And that at least gives me some some hope. 
I got two things that I think people, and I don't know if they intersect at all. Two things I talked about with a couple people um, in in the hockey business. Quite obviously, a former a former uh, uh, assistant general manager in the league. There's two things that are a little bit strange. One that, um, and I believe Kyle Beach. Let me universally say that I find it. I, I find it. I, I don't know why. Kyle stayed with the organization as long as he did. And I'm understanding that there might have been an element of fear. I also think there might have been an element of control from the Blackhawks thinking, we're not trading this guy because we don't know what he'll say once he's out of the realm of our organization. But he played in Rockford. You, you've seen many guys like this. You and I could have a beer and name 80 of them who are top 15 picks, who are world junior players. And for some reason, it, it just doesn't take in the NHL. I think now we have a better understanding maybe of why Kyle Beach didn't make it. Do you ask yourself either of those questions? Why did Kyle stayed in an organization that put winning the Stanley Cup, in his words, ahead of his horrific, nightmarish physical and mental experience? And uh, and, and the organization was clearly not going to call him up, but they didn't want him playing for anybody else, it looks like. Well, two reactions to that. First of all, um, it does remind me of, of one of my least favorite parts of the report. Uh, which is when John McDonough, who was at that time the president of the Blackhawks, was talking to human resources and <clears throat> couldn't understand how a player the size of Kyle Beach could possibly be sexually assaulted by a diminutive video coach. Right, right. And it, it, sho- it shocked me. It literally shocked me because this is a guy who had been in the business world for a very long time and seemed to be, the, the concept of power dynamics seemed completely foreign to him. And, you know, this thing happened because Beach's career was being threatened. And the idea that he stayed with the organization could easily be chalked up to the idea that he's, he's afraid about having his dream crushed as a National Hockey League player and thinking that he has to do certain things in order to keep that dream alive, despite all the things that had happened within the organization. The other thing, though, is completely spot on, man. Like, we constantly are talking about draft busts and guys mm-hmm. that never made it. And, and, and players that, uh, that couldn't ascend from the AHL to the NHL. And, and I think this is one of those deals. And it was the same deal with Akeem Alou when, when he had his situation with the Blackhawks go down. It was just like, take a step back and think about the other factors that are at play behind the scenes and maybe not necessarily jump to conclusions about the level of talent or commitment uh, that certain guys have if they don't make the show. Yeah, and and to give hockey fans, you know, people who are casual hockey fans a taste of, he's drafted 11th overall, a couple picks below are guys like Tyler Myers, Eric Carlson, uh, a couple picks ahead are Josh Bailey, who's almost at 1,000 games, uh, you know, uh, Mikhail Bodker, Luke Shen, and then that's the Stamkos draft in 2008. The last thing I got for you today, um, and and we'll we'll uh, we'll point people towards your column today as well, is uh, you know your colleague at ESPN, John Butchergrass, did the interview. Um, I can't, it's hard to even say uh, with the late Brendan Burke. I remember where I was when I heard about that being in Toronto and Brian obviously being the general manager here. And I've thought about it, and 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 they were such advocates for you can play and advocates for for coming out. Um, and I. I worry that this is a this is a setback, and I worry that although this was 11 years ago, that this this is going to make it even harder. And I worry. You mentioned the hockey culture and how toxic it can be. I've always worried it could be the last possible sport where a gay player could be out and be a prominent NHLer. What do you think about that? I don't know if, if one is related to the other as far as the situations go, but I do think that your question speaks to again the overall um, the overall question about hockey culture and how supportive it could be and mm-hmm. 
You know, when it comes to, to a gay player, I mean, I, again, I, I think of where we were 10 years ago and I think of where we are now, and it's, it's stark. I mean, you know, the, the amount of support that a gay player would have, like we, when Luke Prokop came out, I mean, uh, earlier this year, I mean, there was a, all that support um, for a guy who wasn't even in the league at that time. And so I do think we're at a place where, where whether it's any kind of issue, mental health or, or being afraid to, to, you know, live your life in a truthful way and all this other stuff. Like, I, I just feel like we are in a better place and a healthier place than we were 10 years ago, but we have a long, long way to go. And, and I think that's, if you're looking for a takeaway from this thing, it, it's, it's that. It's that we have a long way to go. And we have a long way to go because um, mm. of how much buck passing and, and throwing people under the bus that happened within the last 48 hours versus people taking responsibility for their actions. And, mm. and maybe that's the discouraging thing, thing, is that like if something does happen to you as a player, you come away from this wondering, okay, who actually does have my back in this situation? You're uh, you're an awesome guest. I got 20 seconds. Do Quenville and or Shevel Dayoff um, have the same jobs uh, two weeks from now? I've, I've thought that Shevel Dayoff might have a little bit more cover because he was assistant general manager, and there were definitely people above him in the food chain that could have taken care of the situation. Quenville has a bit more culpability, and I'm, I'm going to be really fascinated to see mm. what comes out of this meeting with Bettman because uh, – Man, there's a lot of stuff in that report that makes me think that that guy shouldn't coach in the NHL again. Yeah, yeah, and there's and I think there's a lot of fan bases and players uh, that may feel the same. Maybe they're on the Florida Panthers right now, and they're afraid to say anything just yet. Um, Greg, loved having you on. Thanks very much for the time today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Greg Wyshynski, senior uh, NHL writer for ESPN. He is award-winning uh, Toronto Star columnist Bruce Arthur. You know what? Like well, Maybe we'll get to it by the end, but we were going to just be able to talk about the Rodgers family and and this and that and and what's the difference between a bodyguard and a videographer. Fun stuff. Fun stuff, Bruce. And uh, and Joe Natale's $200 million in, in, uh, in, as a severance. But you thought the David Clarkson contract was... Anyway, um, but we're here, and, and it's something far infinitely more tragic and serious and, and i said this yesterday uh and i know in essence because you've done work for tsn he's somebody you know and and i know and thank god we have him and i wish we had more of him but at least we have the one rick westhead the work he did on this was phenomenal yeah usually you and i just do uplifting stuff like the pandemic right correct also um, yes that restrictions so yes it, rick it, rick the work rick does let's just start with that because there's lots of other stuff to talk about but i think it's important the work Rick does is specifically allowed and encouraged by TSN. They didn't have to hire him and give him this brief. They could pull it back at any time, but he, they, they let Rick do really important hard work. It's the same with the athletic and Katie Strang. I'm proud to call both of them friends and colleagues personally. It's, it's so easy. And I, I've been guilty of this as anyone at times. It's so easy to just cover sports and the world in kind of a safer way, right? In a more superficial way, because that's the whole system is built on an incentive kind of structure, like everything and winning and, and, and kind of eyeballs and all the attention economy, all those things are what people get drawn to and what is more remunerative. And that's just how the world works. And this stuff is the real stuff. It's the hard stuff. And so I will, they will always have my respect, Rick and Katie, because I, I'm really glad that their employers let them do it. Do I have a parallel at all in what happened? Uh, it's a little bit of drift for some people, and maybe some people don't quite 
know or understand the significance of what Joe Paterno was at Penn State. And there's nothing like that. We're talking about a video coach, I would argue, easily replaceable in most. I couldn't tell you another video coach ever in the NHL, but it speaks to um, the fear that Kyle Beach was put under, the the, the blackmail, the, um, the, the, the gross influence that this person um, inflicted upon him, making him think that he had, uh, you know, he held Kyle Beach's professional future um, in the palm of his hand. I went to Penn State back in, I guess it was 2011, mm-hmm. and and reported on it, and I talked to a lot of people, and what I remember out of everything, beyond the surreal nature of the town, beyond the fact that Joe Paterno, who at the time was as close to a sainted figure in American sports as you could have named, um, was a guy who lost his job over it. Um, that What people who had been in that town and around that program for a really long time told me, it was the fact that the institution was the most important thing, more important even than the people within it. And once that happens, I mean, that happens everywhere, right? Like the whole, the whole of society is built on institutions with self-protective instincts. And hockey is maybe one of the more extreme ones when it comes to silence, when it comes to a culture of nepotism and kind of protection of the, of the brotherhood, whatever it is. But, I mean, there's lots of these all over the place. But once you become that, then it's about what level of internal leadership do you have? And that's where Joe Paterno falls down, right? Mm, right. Joe Paterno had the power at Penn State, and that's and he had the ability and had some knowledge of what had happened with Jerry Sandusky, and he let it happen, right? And that seems to be what happened here in the case of Kyle Beach, is that even if the principals in the Chicago Blackhawks organization, so John McDonough, Al McIsaac, Stan Bowman, um, Joel Quenville, Kevin Sheldale, even if they didn't know the absolute specifics of the incident, they had the power to find out the absolute. And the, and the obligation to investigate, because not every accusation and not every allegation is a valid one. But But this one certainly looks that way with the guy's conviction three years later involving a youth high school hockey player. But they don't know that then in 2010. The obligation's there to investigate it, and they did not, clearly. Well, and you see what happens with this investigation, right? With an actual independent investigation, which talked to however many people it did. And so what happened at Penn State is similar to what happened at USA Gymnastics, similar to what happened in the Catholic Church. And in this case, the institution was the Chicago Blackhawks in hockey. And I talked to Sheldon Kennedy because, and it's, I hate that I have to call Sheldon Kennedy on days like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. People forget a little bit. Sheldon used to tell him, he told me once, that when he rollerbladed across the country to raise money for victims of sexual abuse, he would get outside of a town and a, and a car would pull up and a person would say, I didn't want to tell you in front of everyone else. And I'm telling you now, um, and Sheldon's been listening to those stories for 25 years and I asked him if this was familiar. And he said, it's absolutely familiar. This is exactly how Graham James operated in a vacuum in, in a hockey system for 20 years is that there is a veneration of the coach of the team above the individual. And as a result, you get Kyle beaches, right? And that interview was exceptional partly because of the way Rick handled it. And partly because Kyle was, able despite and through his emotion to explain exactly the effect it had on him that the abuse and then the the lack of action had on him and it's easy for stuff like this to become statistics right like because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of athletes that come through there's a lot of everyone who comes goes through everywhere 
But when you realize that this happens to people and it doesn't have to, that's when it really hits. Well, a, a person we both know as well that, that we would probably say we're friends with, there's Steve Simmons from the Toronto Sun, and he says clearly the most important book he ever wrote wasn't a biography of somebody. It was it was the David Frost book, and that's got so many tree branches. In, in fact, it stops right at the, at the Maple Leafs head coach. And while not absolving Sheldon Keith, of course it was one of the first questions people had to ask. Do you still talk to David Frost? What was your relationship with David Frost? How do you feel about this in retrospect? Of course those questions have to be asked well and for people there's some people who, who don't like steve for whatever reason go read that book <laughs> right i thought steve sometimes that. enjoys playing the you know we all have played the heel at one point maybe in our uh, pro wrestling uh, journalist careers right but steve doesn't book, steve doesn't mind it <laughs> but that book is the real thing and here's one problem with all this is so ken campbell formerly of the star in the hockey news mm. and now with his own uh, kind of substack Ken wrote a great book, uh, Selling the Game, right, about hockey and the kind of underside of it. And it's a really good book, and not enough people bought it because the appetite in this country, in Canada, and this is hockey-specific, but you could apply it to lots of other contexts, but for us it's hockey. In Canada, we sing ourselves a lot of songs about what hockey is, right? We tell ourselves a lot of stories about what hockey is, and some of them are true. Um, that we venerate the game and give it a cultural importance beyond even the culture of a sport. And one of the results of that is that people don't want to hear the bad news, right? People don't want to hear the stuff that isn't the veneration, that isn't the, the gossip, that isn't like, they don't want the really tough stuff. So there isn't a huge market for it. And that's what makes the fact that TSN covers this stuff really important. And that's what makes the fact that the athletic covers this stuff so well really important. Is is this this is really happening? This stuff happens, and whether or not we want to know about it, we should. I wonder where it goes in in terms of a, a of a culture. And I just had Greg Wachinski on. I said your colleague uh, John Butchagross. Uh, Brendan Burke, the late Brendan Burke, which is so hard to say, felt comfortable coming out with John Buchagross. Um, you, you know, people come to you and they trust you. People come to me and they trust me. And, and, and you earn that over time by putting credit in the bank. So Brendan Burke comes out, obviously passed away tragically in a car accident. But I hated and, and I don't think I did this, you know, um, flippantly. But when people would say, yeah, I really feel like the NHL is ready and we're so ready to be you know, out there and to have gay players here and gay players there. And I said, I wish you were right. I see it in other sports. I see it in soccer. I see Carl Nassib of the Las Vegas Raiders come out and, and he announces it on an Instagram post like he's ordering lunch. I don't see it in hockey, Bruce. I want to. I don't. How, does this change anything the last 24 hours? I worry it, it takes us a step back. I don't know how it couldn't. Well, I mean, I don't think it necessarily takes us a step back because I think when you see courage, when you see someone speak out, that like literally the name of the Me Too movement, right, is Me Too, right? It requires a, a, a beginning. And this isn't a beginning. I think it's more of a repeated cycle mm -hmm. because like the, we've seen this before with Theo Fleury, with Graham James, with um, Sheldon Kennedy. With, uh, this has happened before. Um, what I do think is that this should shake hockey culture m more than it probably will because that notion of silence, that notion that Joel Quenville was allowed to coach a game last night, not only by the Florida Panthers, but by the league. Uh, 
that is not how you should do things, right? The fact that the NHLPA already had to put out an apology for not doing more when this allegation came to them, and without explaining why, the fact that the NHL wasn't interested in an investigation, according to Kyle Beach, as of the summer, the fact that all these guys were, some, I mean, if Shovel Dayoff and Joel Quenville lied in the summer about not knowing about this, and it certainly seems that's the case. Yeah. What, what gave them the comfort that they wouldn't be found out? Yeah. Right? Like, think about that for a second. Well, and the John McDonough firing happens, and we're like, that's strange. He was really popular there. He, he kind of gets credit for, you know, taking the team away from the Wirtz family and, and calling his shots and revolutionizing their popularity again, right? So why, so why, why leave? <laughs> now we know. The thing is, this, this isn't, and I, I think this, isn't, this is an extra thing. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons they didn't want to address the Kyle Beach issue is because they were trying to win a Stanley Cup. This has been one of the most successful NHL franchises in the last 15 years. They're, in fact, a model franchise in a lot of ways after years of wandering in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And that's been the story. And the question always has to be, what's the cost, right? And if, if the Brad Aldrich case, if he doesn't wind up abusing that 16-year-old, this is the part that got me the most. Um, if he doesn't wind up abusing that 16-year-old in Michigan, then Kyle Beach never comes forward. And Kyle Beach when he asked what he would say to him, like this was the part that really got me. He said, I'm sorry that I didn't do more. And I'm, I thank you because if yeah. you hadn't done that, if you hadn't come forward, then I never would have known. Right. Mm-hmm. It, there, the Sheldon talks about the empowerment of bystanders, right? The empowerment of leadership, clear pathways that are independent of the sport itself right? For people to come forward when stuff like this happens. Hockey doesn't really have that. They say they do and they don't culturally or otherwise. And that's what I hope changes. Gotta leave it there, Bruce. Powerful stuff. Thanks very much. Loved having you on today. You bet, bet, Brady. And yes, our next guest um, uh, writing about uh, John Tory's role in this uh, Rogers circular. He said, she said, this is the chairman of the board. No, this is over the last two weeks and this will not end. They'll go to court in British Columbia early next week. Uh, she's uh, city hall reporter, Jennifer Pagliaro. It's great to have you on again. Thanks very much for making the time. Hey, good morning, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Last week, it felt, um, I think maybe the, the tide turned in public opinion to some extent on, on John Tory. Um, in that Tory said, listen, this is important. I, I promised, uh, you know, uh, Ted Rogers that this is what I would do. It's I'm doing a favor for a friend. Um, but I, and he's always done this with City Hall business, declared conflicts of interest as a result. He was very upfront about that. So I don't think there's any questions about that. The issue is obviously that's flared up that you reported on two days ago was the one hundred thousand dollars of of compensation. It's one thing to do a favor for a friend and and a company that you used to work for. It's another thing to be paid quite handsomely for it. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we've always known that he's on this family trust, and it hasn't been a secret at City Hall, but it's definitely come up again because of this bitter family feud that's going on, and it, it's quite a story. And uh, yeah, what's interesting is you know. Now, with the, you know, the current story that, you know, is Ed Rogers in, is Ed Rogers out? I mean, this is the future governance of one of the biggest telecom companies in the country. And what's really fascinating to me is that Mayor John Tory may have a deciding vote, uh, you know, in the future of of whether this person stays uh, in any kind of position of power. We're waiting to see, obviously, what happens uh, at the court level and, uh 
perhaps that will resolve things itself and, and John Tory can uh, sit this one out. I think the one thing that never gets called into question, um, and I do think uh, Mayor Tory has been overall good for the city. I think we could debate, um, you know, a restriction. I, I think the pandemic has certainly put a, an onus and a spotlight on him and and some of the, the lockdown policies. Um, n- nobody's made everybody happy during the pandemic as a politician, clearly. But I, I would make the case some people have defended the affiliation saying, well, he's already independently wealthy. And this is a major company that employs thousands of employees. Tory's mentioned that himself. And I'm like, those also are arguments for why this is a conflict. If the money, it doesn't, you know, uh, make a difference in your bottom line. A, don't take it. And if it comes to a giant corporation like this, then you've got a you've got a sway of influence on an awful lot of jobs in uh, in the city of Toronto for a private company. And many mayors don't have that. Yeah, you know, it was definitely news to me that he was actually being compensated for that role. You know, I wrote about it back in 2014, and it actually didn't even cross my mind then that he would be getting paid for it. Again, because he is independently wealthy, and it it just didn't occur to me that he would get paid for that role. Mm-hmm. And then we had heard that perhaps he was getting compensated, and he actually, his office confirmed themselves that he does get um, $100,000, which is, is definitely news you know, it's interesting because it, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but at the same time, that's almost half of what he makes as mayor. But but the important thing is that you know, in terms of a conflict, like he has to declare a financial interest mm-hmm. on any item that comes up at council. It has to do with Rogers, or he could find himself in a real legal bind himself. And his office is really careful to have him declare those conflicts. He has declared actually quite a few in the last couple of years related to Rogers, but obviously it does raise this question of, you know, the mayor of the city involved with this major telecom and there's all kinds of uh, important decisions coming up, uh, including, you know, the Rogers, the future of the Rogers Center itself. You know, if he were to be reelected as mayor, he wouldn't be able to participate in, you know, a major redevelopment discussion. And, And some folks have questions about whether, that's sensible or uh, appropriate for a mayor of uh, the largest city of Canada. Well, you know, you note this uh, as well. I'll, I'll read from your column. The city just does do business with Rogers. A nearly $6 million contract was awarded to the company for mobile services with a start date in 2020. Tory was not responsible for that decision and did not need to declare a conflict. But there's sort of unwritten, like, like when I worked for Rogers and people say, oh, you know, do, do you get told what to say about the Blue Jays? They own the Blue Jays. I'm like, you don't. But there is an understanding that you'll try to some more than others to accentuate positive stories and avoid negative stories about that. Like there's just things that are unwritten and unsaid. We all have those. You've got it in your job. I've got it in mine. Everybody's got a boss and those bosses have bosses. Yeah. You know, one thing that um, Jeff Conacher said to me, he, he is uh, responsible for Democracy Watch, which is kind of an independent watchdog agency. He said, you know, sometimes with a conflict, it's, it's not what you do for the benefit of the company. Sometimes doing nothing can also benefit um, a company. And, and those are sort of like unspoken, un, unconsidered things. And, you know, that that is really interesting um, because none of, the, none of the codes that council members have to follow or none of the legal parameters that apply to council members really cover that. Like, like what you're talking about, this kind of like, thing that happens um it, it's difficult to quantify it's difficult to prove um but it, it certainly raises questions of course about 
you know, wearing two hats, being the mayor mm. of the city and being responsible for, you know, wanting the best for the future of this major player. Again, lots of uh, employees in the city, does major business with the city, um, is a is a, is just a major uh, economic boost in the city. And so it's a it's a it's a strange very strange situation. I got about a minute, but you wrote about Joe Cressy not running for uh, mayor or any position on, on city council uh, once again. So stepping aside, um, you know, it's it's still early days, but by April or May, it won't be. And we'll probably get a better sense of the players. Do you expect Tory to run for mayor? And if he did, is there a name that's an obvious one that would be his biggest competition um, to him getting reelected? Yeah, you know, right now we definitely aren't counting him out. You know, there's been a few signs that he's gearing up to run again. You know, seven years into his mayoralty, his team just started like a pretty flashy newsletter, for example, that goes out regularly. And I'm not sure an outgoing mayor really needs a newsletter. So there's a few signs. Especially a flashy one, right? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's not just made up on WordPerfect from, uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. That's that's right. Some work has gone into it. And so there are a few signs that, you know, we're kind of uh, assuming that uh, he's he's eyeing a third term. In terms of who could run against him, I mean, that's sort of why we wrote that story about Cressy, because he was the obvious candidate to challenge the mayor from the progressive left. And as far as we know, the left doesn't really have uh, a serious contender right now. People speak of uh, Mike Layton, who's uh, Jack Layton's son, obviously, current city councillor, who uh, I'm not sure he wants that job. Yeah. Um, I'm not 100% sure, you know. And in terms of uh, who could actually challenge Tory, you know, he's got a stronghold on both parts of the downtown and the suburbs. And we have to remember mm. that. Uh, they're very different parts of this city, and you have to be able to uh, speak to all, all of those different folks and all of the issues that uh, matter to them. So it'll be a challenge for anyone to uh, take him on. Jennifer, thanks very much for your time. I really enjoy reading your work. Thanks so much, Greg. Um, very pleased to have our next guest on. Uh, she is uh, a uh, writer, and she wrote an interesting article in the Hill Times this week uh, about Trudeau's cabinet choices. Also, co-founder and co-host of the Bad and Bitchy podcast. I want to name the show. This I still do. Erica Eiffel joins us. What will it take to give up the name and let me call this show that I don't know that I can a Starbucks gift card? Like what would it take? <laughs> We're not that cheap and neither is our labor. I didn't tell you what the gift card was worth. It could be like free coffee for life. What Eric, no, no. I, no. You're acting like it was 20 bucks or something, like something <laughs> your grandmother would give you in the mail. Come on. That's exactly it. <laughs> All right. So uh, the cabinet and a lot of reverb over uh, the non-selection of Greg Fergus. He's a Quebec MP and a black man. What I thought was interesting is an NDP MP, Matthew Green, who's in the parliamentary black caucus with him, was critical of the decision. Here's what he wrote. You get a guy like Greg, who's done everything right within his party, serving the country, and he gets overlooked. It's really unconscionable. That's really strong words for someone from another party. You wouldn't see that in the United States, but you're seeing it here. Well, I mean, it is unconscionable. Greg Fergus is basically responsible for the liberals' response to George Floyd. He's responsible for bringing black people into budget consultations for the first time. He's responsible for putting black public federal servants on the map in the Liberal Party, which they should be thankful for, considering they're getting sued by black 
federal public servants for harassment and racism. So, you know, again, my question is, what more does this man have to do? Apparently, this man can cure cancer, and he's not yet good enough for cabinet. Yet Carolyn Bennett is there. Harjit Sajjan is there. I mean, these... And, and Gilbo is there. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are three screw-ups, if anybody met them. And so my question then becomes, this is the material point. What more do Black people have to do just to gain a little bit of recognition? And why is Black talent and Black labor discounted so heavily in this country? I think I said it was dis- uh, Black labor or black talent is worth three-fifths of white ones because I evoke the three-fifths compromise in that, in that sentence because that's really what we're looking at here. We've talked about Annamie Paul and what happened yeah. to her, and now we have Greg Fergus, and he's not getting recognized by a party who claims that diversity is our strength, but they produced a pretty white cabinet yesterday. I think only eight cabinet ministers are of color or women of color, it that's unconscionable too. So do you look and say they've overdone it with something like gender parity and there clearly isn't enough, uh, you know, racial parity? And and uh, again, I'm sure that we could agree that, yeah, you know, changes need to be made and there has to be a bit of an evolution here. It's not this isn't a rookie cat. This isn't a rookie MP in Greg Fergus. You documented it. It's one thing to say, let's take somebody just because they look some way and they're not qualified. That ain't Greg Fergus. Nobody wants no. that. No, no, exactly. Yet, whenever we talk about diversity, the whole issue of merit comes out. Okay? Merit is only questioned when it comes to diversity. And this is an example of a man who clearly merits the post. And first of all, I would like to know how come he's not Minister of Heritage? Like, Pablo Rodriguez's Minister of Heritage is a joke to me. It's a slap in the face. Because the last time Pablo Rodriguez was Minister of Heritage, he went and did anti-racism consultations. And when people started talking about systemic racism, he dismissed it and said, that's not the scope for these consultations. I don't understand. So why doesn't the Trudeau government just come out and just, just say that diversity is just a branding exercise for them? They don't really mean it. And so we can all move on with our lives because I'm just tired of the performance. Eric Eiffel is our guest, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You and I have talked about this before, and I think it was when we talked about Anime Paul. But I think that's, you know, if we're going to have these conversations and people are, are going to, you know, give opinion and say, well, you know, I don't see myself represented in this cabinet. I don't see myself represented in, in anything. It can be, even be the arts. It can be education. But that said, we we're struggling here. And I'm sure you'd say this. Uh, um, you know, uh, black university students, black teenagers, black high school students probably struggle on the national stage. I mean, I will say there's Leslin Lewis, but there's a big there's a lot of butts there. If we're going to call out three liberal cabinet ministers. We're going to call out Leslin Lewis for seemingly not understanding, um, you know, much about science or uh, or medicine. But there's that. <laughs> exactly. And that's fair. It's a fair critique of her. You know, I I. I think I've said it myself, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, the question is, what kind of country do we want? Because right now what we have are is a very white um, 
executive class. And um, as I said before, the lower you go down the socioeconomic scale in this country is where the more and more you see color. So that looks like a plantation to me. Just a thought. And it's more than just a thought, but I, <laughs> you see, <laughs> it's a major statement and I'm going to, I'm not going to pretend I didn't hear it, but I got it. I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it does. I'm sorry. Okay. Were, I'm sorry. Isn't that how they were structured? Like, I mean, I mean I'm not telling lies here. <laughs> and so, but you know, I do think that when reporters um, travel with Trudeau, to um, to the climate change um, summit in Scotland, I believe, mm-hmm. that they should be asking these questions. We just had an election to get the same result that we had before to end up with basically the same cabinet. I have questions. And that cabinet is no more diverse than the last one. Mm. And why is it that gender doesn't include women of color. When we talk about gender, it's not, it's not um, different from being a woman, from, from color sometimes, right? And so the question then becomes, what, at what point do you stop moving the goalposts? for people who want to get promoted. And I know that this plays out in organizations all across the country. Mm. There are people out there who are doing their damnedest, who are delivering on time, who are doing the work, who are helping their employer expand their reach, expand their influence, expand their stakeholders, whatever, and they get zero recognition. A lot of them are women. A lot of them are people of color. A lot of them are women of color. And at what point do we actually practice what we preach? If we're a country of merit, then what does that merit look like? Right, right. Um, I want to ask you about Dave Chappelle. Uh, this controversy won't go away. He sells out. He sold out uh, his his documentary uh, tour, and he's coming to Toronto November fifteenth. So the public are speaking, saying, "Yeah, we'll pay one hundred twenty five hundred fifty bucks to go see him." Here's where I struggle. And and Andrew Yang made this point on Bill Maher's show the other night. He says. We, we the, some of this is language. There's a deep division, more so in the States, but we feel it here because th- there's there's coded words that draw this dividing line. And we shouldn't look to a you and I were talking last night about people in the arts. I don't look to, you know, uh, people who are in movies, people who are actors, people who, um, y- you know, are, are in the artistic realm to be. Charles Barkley once said, don't look at me as a role model. And he was right. And he took a lot of stick for that. I'm not going to raise my kid uh, to be Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley's Charles Barkley. And he's there to entertain us and be outspoken. And sometimes he's right and sometimes he's wrong. But we can't cancel people just for being wrong that one time out of 10. How do you view this with, with Dave Chappelle? He's made a lot of people angry, but he's also being accused of. I, I read one column where he's been being accused of of uh, documenting uh, white privilege. That would be surprising to Dave Chappelle if he had a mirror nearby that he's <laughs> that he's uh, exemplifying white privilege. Um, I don't get that. Um, oh, God, this controversy. OK, so I just want to preface this by saying. I haven't seen the I haven't seen the special, the Netflix special that everybody's talking about. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read much on Dave Chappelle because this is just 
like when I heard about this, I thought, oh, so it's like the last special and the last special and the last special. Oh, okay. So at least he's consistent. That's what I'm saying. I think the issue is that we're in a space right now where a lot of people are under attack, right? So, um, you know, I don't need to go through everybody. There are just a lot of groups right now who are feeling a certain way and feeling threatened because Donald Trump happened. And I think you need to take that into context is that Trump happened. A lot of us are afraid. I know a lot of pe- a lot of, you know, people of color in this country who are afraid because of the rise of the PPC, for example. So I think that context needs to be taken into consideration. Second of all, I, I, I'm not crazy about Dave Chappelle separating trans people from the black community because, you know, trans, black trans women have, are murdered the most in, right. in right. the U.S. And, you know, that's where I'm like, ah, it becomes a little bit dangerous in that specific way. And so um, I'm not saying that he should be canceled. I'm not saying that. I have a long list before Dave Chappelle, let me just say. (laughs) And most of them make policies in this country. So that's more my focus. Um, But, like, even though you don't raise your kid to, you know, idolize Charles Barkley, your kid might idolize Charles Barkley anyway. And I think that, um, again, I don't, I'm not saying that he should be canceled at all. Yeah, I, 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 I'll clarify what I said about Barkley because it's the same thing as, as you could listen to a Beatles song and go, hey, you know, some of their best stuff was written while they're high on LSD. Can I advise against that until you at least get into university? <laughs> right? <laughs> can you, can you kind of do that when you're an independent adult so I don't hear about it in the neighborhood, you know, that you're uh, peddling LSD to your, uh, your grade nine friends? Is that cool? Like, I've, that's, a, that's the line for me as a parent, I suppose. <laughs> Yes, as a parent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, uh, those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. They're not. They're not. No, no, no. And we'll have to. I got to leave it there. But uh, but I'll have a longer conversation we about it. Uh, to talk about the Cowboys. We okay. Next up, they got a big game against Minnesota. And Kirk that, Cousins sucks. You're not going to have a problem. You'll be happy next week because Dallas will win Monday Night Football. Yes, you know this. Yes. Okay. Okay. I believe in Dak Prescott. I'm a Dak guy. Dak, uh, Dak all the way, uh, or I'll come up with a better slogan. I'll come up with something as good as bad and bitchy, but I don't have it in my okay. wheelhouse right now. Okay. Thanks, Erica. Okay. Bye. Eric Eiffel uh, joining. Thanks a lot for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Heavy day, no doubt. Uh, we'll have our pre-Halloween show, our Halloween Eve Eve show coming up on the uh, Friday edition of Toronto Today. You can hear it live between 5.30 and 9 o'clock. And always know this podcast is here for you, downloadable almost always before 10 a.m. to get you through your late morning and into the afternoon. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for listening.